0: through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinfulness of desires. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, Jesus promised that your Lord would build his church, and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. So I want to ask that as your word goes forth this morning, you will build your church. I want to ask that unbelievers who are outside the church will be brought into the fold. I want to ask those who are within the body of Christ, I want to ask that they will be built up and strengthened And Father, we trust that you will do this because you have promised to do this. So we pray confidently in Christ's name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, some of you have asked me what I was going to preach on after 1 Peter. And when I said 2 Peter, your response was basically, oh, (laughs) Um, I guess it makes sense that once we finish 1 Peter, we would move on uh, to 2 Peter. Seems logical. One follows after the other. I think they do go well together, but they go well together because they beautifully complement each other. As you may recall, if you've been with us, 1 Peter dealt with enemies outside the church. It addressed persecution from without that was coming against the Christians. Second Peter deals with enemies inside the church. False teachers with heretical Teaching and moral corruption. Simply put, we could say that First Peter addressed pain, and Second Peter addresses pleasure. Uh, Tony Rinkey on Twitter recently quoted John Piper who said, The devil has only two weapons pain and pleasure. He will either hurt you so bad that you hate God. Or he will give you so much pleasure that you don't need God. And the solution to both is the same, namely God. God must become more precious than what I lose. And God must become more precious than what I gain. Someone responded to that tweet and said, neat, but he also has Distraction, talking about the devil, which is not necessarily painful or pleasurable. And when he talked about distraction, I, I thought of C.S. Lewis who said, the devil loves to fill the world with constant noise. And had if you notice wherever you go, there's there's noise. I walk into the health club and there's noise in the foyer. There's noise in the locker room. There's noise in the classroom. And wherever we go, there's just noise, 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 bombarding us so that we have difficulty hearing the still, small voice of God. Now, my purpose here is, is not to put Satan's tactics into neat, leet, little, precise, tiny boxes and, and wrap them all up. I think Satan has a myriad of weapons in his arsenal that he uses against Christians. And here's what we need to realize. Your enemy knows exactly where you are vulnerable. He knows when you are vulnerable, and he knows exactly to what you are most vulnerable. He has all kinds of Weapons. Let me just highlight a few. First of all, there's, there's family. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I bet there's not a person in this congregation who doesn't have some kind of conflict in their family because of the Christian faith. And then there's testing. In Luke 8, Jesus tells the parable of the, of the sower. And the, and the word is, is going out. It's being, it's being proclaimed. And he says, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. And you think, isn't that wonderful? People come to church. We love the worship. We, we love the message. We, we love the fellowship. They receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a little while in time of testing, they fall away. See what happens? Testing, opposition, pain comes and they fall away. And then there's riches and pleasure. In the very next verse, Jesus went on to say that there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. So here we have the pleasures of life choking the effectiveness of the word of God so that it doesn't bear fruit. And then there's popularity in John 5, Jesus said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? That's, that's powerful. If you're a people pleaser, if you have to be liked, if you're seeking the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from God, notice what Jesus said. How can you believe The implication is you can't believe. That will choke out your belief in him if you're looking for the glory that comes from man. And we could go on and on. Satan's arsenal is full of weapons that he can use against us. Now, by the way, when it comes to pain and pleasure, when it comes to external circumstances and internal corruption, it's not an either-or proposition. Uh, They can both work Against us. Uh, right out in, in the back of the church, we have, we have a tall tree, and I don't know what kind of tree it is, but it, it blew over in one of the storms. And I, and I don't know for sure. I didn't go out there and examine the tree, it's too cold out there. Uh, but I would guess if I went out there and examined the tree, you know what I would see on the inside of the tree in the trunk? I think I would see rot. And if there's rot, on the inside, and then some kind of external trial comes, well, then it just falls right over. And what's true of trees is also true of people. So these two enemies can, can work in tandem against us. Now, as I said, First Peter uh, dealt with enemies outside the church and focused on fierce persecution. Second Peter deals with the enemies inside the church, and it focuses... On moral corruption that's coming from the false teachers. Look at Second Peter two verse one. Peter says, "But false teachers also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you." Reminding me of Acts twenty where. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he's, he's giving them advice about the church and their responsibility to oversee the flock. And this is what he says to the elders. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore... Be alert. How did Paul know? How did Paul know that after he left, wolves would come up within the flock? How could he make such a bold prophecy? Did the Holy Spirit give him some kind of revelation to see what was coming in the future? No. It wasn't necessary. This is how he knew. Because the devil always always, always, always will attack the church with false doctrine. That's just a given. Expect it to happen, therefore be alert. And Peter is telling these readers to prepare for the false teachers that are coming and false teachers have come. Continuing on in verse 2, he says who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Uh, Precisely what these destructive heresies are, we don't know. What we do know is that they're denying Jesus Christ, they're denying his lordship, Uh, Peter's focus throughout this epistle actually is on the character of the false teachers. And he's saying to the people whom he is writing, the same ones he wrote, 1 Peter, he is saying, watch out for their character. Notice what he goes on to say in in verse 2 of chapter 2. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be Blaspheme. So watch out for their sexual sensuality. And then he goes on and he says in verse 3, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. So, so watch out for their greed. Watch out for their love of money. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, we see the same thing. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls they have hearts trained in greed accursed children so there's there's the danger many will follow the sensuality of these false teachers and they will be enticed and peter is saying beware beware simply put peter is addressing false teaching, and he is addressing false living. And by the way, those two always go together. In 1 Timothy 4.16, uh, Paul is giving instructions to young Timothy. He's a, he's a new preacher, and this, this is what he says. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Another translation says, watch your life and your doctrine. Again, the two go together. And then he says, persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. So there it is. Timothy, watch your life, your character, and pay attention to your teaching, your doctrine. Bad teaching and bad living are like a two-way highway. It goes in, in both directions. When you have bad teaching, that will lead to bad living. And when you have bad living, that will lead to bad teaching. It's uncanny how often that takes place. Perhaps you've made this observation. You've you've known of some well-known pastor, and and all of a sudden their their doctrine started to deviate a little bit from orthodoxy and kind of watching and you're like that's interesting and, and then you, you watch and then it's, it's like deviating even more and, and, and some of these guys have left the faith altogether and then it turns out that this guy was having an affair with so and so again it is uncanny how often the two go together they are intermingled False doctrine and false living. So how do we combat bad doctrine and immoral living? I have two points for you this morning. Knowledge and virtue. That's how we combat it. Hopefully those are obvious. I'm not pretending to be profound here this morning. Knowledge is necessary to withstand false teaching and virtue is necessary to withstand immoral teaching. So backing up, chapter 1, verse 2, speaking of knowledge, notice how Peter introduces this letter. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. How many of you would like to have grace and peace multiplied in your life? You have to raise your hand. I'll just assume your hands. Yes, yes. How do you get it? Peter says right here in the knowledge of God, it comes by way of the knowledge of God. Verse three His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Now, my purpose this morning is not to expound all the details of this verse, but I just want to highlight here that we have all that we need for life and godliness, but it comes through the knowledge of God. This is where Peter begins his epistle, and this is also where he ends his epistle, the very last verse. But grow in the grace and knowledge of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I need to pause here, and I need to ask, do you know God? Do you know God? And let me clarify, I didn't ask if you know about God. I know about Michael Jordan. I know a lot of things about Michael Jordan. I've been watching him play basketball for years, or or I used to anyways, but I don't know him. I've never met him. I've never personally spoken with him. I don't have a relationship with him. So when I say, do you know God? I'm saying, do you have a relationship with God? That's, that's what I'm asking. And here's a good test as to whether or not your knowledge of God is what Peter's referring to here. Your knowledge of God includes not just your head, but it has penetrated your hearts and your soul. And you know God. And as a result of knowing God, you enjoy him. He is your treasure. You resonate with David when he says in Psalm 27, For one thing have I asked of the Lord. Just, just one thing, I just have one prayer request, not two, three, four, just one thing that I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David just wants to come to church so that he can gaze and enjoy the beauty of the Lord. He doesn't need to get anything from the Lord. He just wants to enjoy the Lord. David is like a vacationer going to the Grand Canyon, standing there and just taking in the majesty of the Grand Canyon. He doesn't have to get anything out of it. He just goes for the pure enjoyment of the majesty of the Grand Canyon. Or going to Niagara Falls and just standing in awe of the power of, of Niagara Falls or going to the Atlantic Ocean and taking in the vastness of the water or just enjoying the exquisiteness of a long stem, red rose. You just enjoy it for its, its beauty, for, for what it is in and of itself. And those who know God enjoy God, even if he never blessed them with a single gift. But he has. (laughs) He he has immensely blessed us. And James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift that you have ever enjoyed has come down from the Father of heavenly light. Every good thing that you have ever enjoyed has come from God. And if you know that, you will praise God. And we haven't even gotten to his indescribable gift, his son, Jesus Christ, who he sent from heaven to earth to take upon himself flesh and blood, to live the perfect life that we could never live, dying cross in our place so that through forgiveness, through repentance and faith in him, we could be forgiven and have everlasting life. And if you know that God, you enjoy that god if you don't enjoy that god if it's not your delight to praise god it can just be that you don't you don't know him you might know about him but you don't know him because if you knew him you would be counting down the days to sunday when you could gather together with the people of god and and sing his praises and if if you have that knowledge that will fortify you against the false teachers with whatever doctrine they they may bring your way so we need that so to combat bad doctrine and a moral living we need we need knowledge we also need virtue and it's interesting as i was putting this message together i was just thinking about that word virtue and i was thinking when was the last time in the media i heard anybody talking about he's a man of virtue she's a woman of virtue we need to be a people of virtue. It, it seems that that very word has all but disappeared from our vocabulary because we have no interest in virtue anymore, it seems. I guess that's just something that we've left behind to a bygone era. That's something the Puritans talked about, but we today, we don't, we don't really care much for, for virtue, but to be very different among the people of God. Turning back to 2 Peter 1.3, we read, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. The NIV translates excellence as goodness. The King James translates it as Virtue. And that Greek word virtue is the same word in verse 5 that's translated virtue. I don't know why it's translated excellence here, but it's the same word. But this is what I want you to notice. Your calling as a Christian, the calling that God has placed upon you, is a calling to share his glory and virtue. Your calling is to reflect the very character of God. Of God. And verse 4: by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Again, we won't get into all the details, but because of God's great promises that we find in His Word, you have been rescued from this world with its sinful desires desires and then in verse 5 Peter says for this reason make every effort mark that make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love So how do you combat being enticed by sensuality and greed? Brick by brick, you build a high, strong wall of virtue. That's how you do it. You become a man or a woman of integrity. And notice what Peter says, make every effort. We need to be earnest about being people of entirely earnest. And you might be wondering, well, how earnest should we be, Pastor? Well, glad you asked. In Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his what? Righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So just leaving aside his kingdom for the moment, seek first his righteousness. And when you do that, everything else will be added to you. But no, seek first his righteousness, his goodness, his virtue. First thing in the morning on your priority list. I need to strive this day to be a man or a woman of integrity. We're to be serious about this. And here's what I want you to see. Righteousness alone is so prized by God that he, that he rewards it. I remember years ago, I was working my way through, through Proverbs, and, and one of the messages was on, was on righteousness. And I remember just you know, studying all the passages on Proverbs, on, on righteousness, and, and this is the observation that I made, and, and I thought it was fascinating. God has promise after promise for his people if they're just righteous. Then let me give you just, just a few of them. There's the promise of treasures without trouble. Proverbs 15, 6. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble trouble befalls the income of the wicked. And then there's this promise of closeness with God and answers to prayer. Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. The implication, he, he is... Near when the righteous pray, and the implication is, and he answers those prayers. The idea is not just, okay, I heard you. No, the idea is, and he answers the prayers of the righteous. You may recall that Jane said, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It's as though when a righteous man or a righteous woman gets on her knees and prays, God says, Now that's a prayer I'm listening to. That's a person I'm listening to. And that prayer coming from a heart of righteousness god says it's powerful it's effective when that person prays answers come and then then there's the promise of boldness or fearlessness proverbs 28:1 the wicked flee though no one pursues <laughs> I love that picture. It's kind of funny in in my mind, to be honest with you. you got this wicked man fleeing, and you're like, what's the matter? They're coming after him. And you're like, there's there's no one here. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Isn't that great? The righteous are bold as a lion. Boldness comes by simply being righteous. It's It's a gift of God. And then just one more. Proverbs 10, 31. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom but the perverse tongue will be cut off. Now, education and academic scholarship may lead to knowledge, but that knowledge will not translate into wisdom. To have wisdom, you have to be righteous, and when you have that, it'll be a gift from God. And there's many others. Just just simply for being righteous, God, God rewards that. Now, while I presented uh, knowledge and virtue as two separate points, I, I want you to see that that they are intermixed, that they, they go together, and really we shouldn't separate them from each other. Just a couple of verses. Let me remind you of, of one five. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement to your faith, supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So you have virtue, and you want to add knowledge to that. And, and then in verse eight. For if these qualities, all these characteristics that he mentioned, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you want to put these two together. Knowledge of God and virtue for God need to go together. I remember years ago listening RC Sproul and he was talking about visiting the home of a well-known uh, theologian and I wish I could remember his name I don't remember his name but um, I did I did recognize it and Sproul said it was it was it was just an absolute downpour outside and they were going somewhere I think it might have been the church or to this guy's office that was just a few blocks down the road and and they ran out to the car and it's one of those storms you know where you just run out to the car and you're you're drenched and then the man says to R.C., oh, I forgot something. I need to run back in the house. And he runs back in the house, and he comes out to the car, and he sits down, and, and R.C. said, what did you need out of the house? And, and he said, I, I forgot my wallet because it had my driver's license in it. And, and R.C. said, it's pouring out. We're, we're just going a couple blocks down the road. And the man says, R.C., the law says that when you drive. You need to have your driver's license with you. In obedience to God and integrity means that we're obedient to God in the small things. And R.C. said this this wasn't a man being self-righteous. He wouldn't have said anything unless I asked for him. You know what I thought of? No wonder I've heard his name. No wonder God has blessed him. Because he's committed to being a man of integrity in the teeny tiny things. Some of you are compromising in what you think are just teeny, tiny things. You think it's no big deal. Be careful, because maybe what's happening is a crack is being put into your wall of integrity. Don't we want to honor God with everything that we have? That's the kind of person God uses. Robert Murray Bashane said, it's not so much great talent and skill that God blesses so much as he blesses likeness to Jesus Christ. And then he went on and he said, a holy man, or we could say a holy woman, is an awesome weapon in the hand of God. Holy people, men and women are, of character, are the people that God uses. And we must put knowledge of God and virtue together because they feed off of each other. Think of Joseph. Most of you know the story of Joseph sold as a slave, ruling in Potiphar's house. And then we're told day after day, Potiphar's wife came on to Joseph. Joseph made advances day after day. Nobody knew what was going on. There weren't any other Israelites around. It was just Potiphar's wife and, and Joseph. And, and one day she was more than aggressive and, and Joseph had to leave his coat behind and run. And, and what did he say? How could I do such a thing and sin against God? God. God, where's God? Joseph lived in the presence of God. Joseph lived, Cormdale, before the face of God. I can't do this. I would sin against God. How can I do such a thing against God? And that's the key to virtue. Being a person of integrity because you love and fear God. That's the key. I a while back Mike Huckabee wrote a book Do the Right Thing and I and I appreciate Mike Huckabee but on the on the back of the book I remember reading do the right thing because it's the right thing. And I thought that's not it. We don't do the right thing because it's the right thing. We do the right thing because it pleases God. I'm not denying that that unbelievers can't be People of integrity. Many unbelievers are people of immense integrity and character. But why? Maybe so they can appease a guilty conscience. Uh, maybe so that they can have a good reputation for those who know them. I don't, I don't know why they're doing it, but apparently they're, they're doing it because it's the right thing to do for whatever reason. But why does a Christian do the right thing? The Christian does the right thing because his heart's desire above everything else is to please God. And he'll do that even when nobody knows. Nobody's around. Nobody sees what I'm doing except God. And because God sees, that's all that matters. So if your knowledge of God is, is such that he sees and you want to enjoy him, then you'll be a person of of virtues, so you need you need to not just know about God, but you need to know God and 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 enjoy Him. And can I just take it one one step further? You need to know God in such a way that knowing Him means more to you than anything else in the world. I love Paul, Philippians three seven and following. He says. But whatever gain I had, and he's talking about his accomplishments in religion. Think about whatever gain I had, I count as loss. I I count as loss for the sake of Christ. He's saying any any gains that I have, any achievements, accolades, trophies that I have compared to Christ, I just consider it lost. Do you get how much Christ means to me? Paul is saying, and, and he's also saying, no, you don't. So let me go further and see if I can help you. So he goes on and he says, "Indeed, I count everything, a loss, because of the surpassing worth excuse me, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not just my gain, but everything I consider loss, because surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord how do you get it? And you know what Paul's thinking? They still don't get it. And this is the image I have in my mind employing a little sanctified imagination. He's sitting in his study and he's trying to figure out what he could write to explain how much knowing Christ means to him. And, and he's praying, Lord, help me to, to come up with some kind of illustration so that I can show your people just how much knowing your son means to me and then he continues on and he says for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish we'll come back to that and count them as rubbish in order that i may gain christ and be found in him not having a righteousness my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in him He says, knowledge of God is so important that when I look at the knowledge of God and knowing Him and the righteousness that I have in Him, everything else is like rubbish. And that's a weak translation. The Greek word is skubula. It's best translated in the King James Version as dung. It means refuge. It means excrement from animals. You know what Paul is saying He's saying, I know this is a crass, I know this is a vulgar illustration, but I need to employ it because it's the only thing I can think of to communicate how much Christ means to me. And it's as though Paul is saying, winning the $1.3 billion lottery. You know what that's like compared to Christ? That's like walking in the backyard and stepping in a big pile of dog poop. And he's just doing his best to communicate how much Christ means to him. And he's like, if I have to use a vulgar expression, I'll use it so somehow people can see just how much Christ means to me. And, I, and now I picture Paul, and, and now he's not, he's not sitting at the desk in his study. Now he's, now he's down on his knees, and he's, and he's praying And this is his prayer. It's recorded for us in verse 10. That I may know him. That's Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, better translated, that I may share in the fellowship of his sufferings. The Greek word is koinonia. Fellowship. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul is praying. you got to see this. Paul is praying that he would suffer. Why is he praying that he would suffer? Because in suffering, there is a fellowship with Christ that cannot be enjoyed any other way. And because he loves Christ and wants to enjoy communion with him, he's praying for suffering to come so that he can experience that intimacy and sometimes may God God may give us that gift and we might not even realize it a few of us met for for dinner the other night and and we were talking about how sometimes when you you go through trials and and let's say you you lose your job and and well-meaning Christians may say well God must have something better for you he has a better job for you and and then lo and behold you wait and you wait and and you get another job and the pay is less and the working conditions are worse God has something better for you Some, sometimes it is a better job sometimes it's not but we were saying God does always have something better for you Romans 8:28 and we know that in all things even the losing of a job God is working for the good those who love him are called according God does have something better, but we need to be spiritually minded perhaps to see what that better is. Maybe the better is he's working in you so that your character reflects more the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe the better is he's moving you from one degree of glory to another. Or maybe the better is he's bringing a trial into your life so that you will draw close to him and experience an intimacy, a fellowship, a communion with him that you would not otherwise have enjoyed. And as we were talking about that, I was just thinking about people that I know. Think about people that you know, that when you look at them, it's, it's as though they, they walk arm in arm through life with Jesus. And you envy that. You envy the relationship that they have with God. You envy the peace that they have with God. You can see it in their lives. They radiate. And what you may not know is that they have that blessing because of the trials that they've, they've gone through. God, God uses those things. So maybe... Some of you may not even realize it, but God is, is blessing you. Maybe he's not blessing you with money. Maybe he's not blessing you with health. Maybe he's not blessing you with a relationship. Maybe he's not blessing you in a number of ways that you want to be blessed. But he's saying, I'm going to give you something better. I am going to give you me. I love it. You, some of you may recall when the Israelites entered into the promised land and then the land was allotted to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then God comes to the tribe of Levi. And they're like, how much land are we going to get? And what does God say? You don't get any land. What? We don't get any land. Tribe of Benjamin, they got land. Joseph, you gave him lots of land because you divided him up into Ephraim and Manasseh. We don't get any land We've been praying for we don't get any land. What do we get? What did God say? I am your portion. Isn't that awesome? You get something better. So picture the tribe of Benjamin saying to the tribe of Levi, You, you didn't get any land, what did you get? We got God. Nana na na nah. that's 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 in the Hebrew. But but in all seriousness, perhaps God is giving you something better. He's giving you himself in all his fullness and majesty and glory. Let's close in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it instructs us. We thank you for it helps us to see life as it was meant to be seen with spiritual eyes through the lens of scripture. Father, I want to ask you to minister to each person in this room. And I pray for every single person individually. And I pray for this congregational corporately. Father, may we grow in the knowledge of God. And may we grow as men and women of virtue who reflect the character of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.